it's really a privilege to get a chance to tell a person's story. So I thank you for that opportunity. A big uh, theme going through this story is really about shame and how we deal with shame and how we recover from shame. I was raised LDS. I was a closeted Mormon, gay Mormon boy. I'm not anymore. So that's a big theme, but shame is common to everybody. And whatever form it's delivered to you, you just get buried by this truckload of shame shit. And then you find your way trying to get the stink off you for a long time. Trying to get the stink off, trying to get the stink off you for a long time. For a long, 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 long time. I guess I just told myself, if you can get through two years of a mission without masturbating, everything's gonna be cured. It was intense motivation. And so I was able to do that. But then when I got home, I had a nervous breakdown because it was so traumatic being a gay boy on a mission, being stimulated by every little thing and always just feeling, you know, like I would go to them to get my endowment and had an erection through my whole initiatory thing because men were touching me while I'm naked under a sheet, feeling guilty the whole time. Like, why is Satan here with me in the temple? If you want to blame, where does the blame stop? Because the person who hurt you was hurt by someone else, was hurt by someone else. That's a human condition. And so I like to think that by acknowledging the hurt that was passed on to me, that I don't have to go on and out and hurt someone else. And that's the beauty of it. You know, it just eliminates victimhood. It just eliminates it because you get to be in it and be so validated and so deeply seen, so deeply, so seen. deeply seen. The real sin is in the secret. This is Infants on Thrones. Baby steps. Who wants someone to preach to? The philosophies of men. I like magical toys. Who wants religion to you? Mingled with humor. I don't believe in them. There will be many willing to preach to you the philosophies of men mingled with humor. We are evolving. Baby steps. You can buy in this world of money. the good in everything look for the people who will set your soul free it always seems impossible until it's done look for the good in everyone all right welcome back to infants on thrones i'm glenn ostland and this is episode 810 The Sin is in the Secret, Healing After a Life of Mormon Programming. And today you're going to hear a panel of Jess. I'm worried about her feeling good, and I'm encouraging her to go to a place where she feels bad. You know, this does not add up. Kurt. They're not willing to do that same thing with you. It creates this like weird imbalance of Ren. What did they tell you like as you were preparing for your mission and asking for help? And Reed. This is Reed, by the way. As Reed brings on his friend Jared to talk about his experience of healing from a one-time immense sense of self-loathing and shame. Now, you know that Jason Mraz song that I use for an outro? The one that says, put down the weapons that you use against yourself? Well, the way I see it, shame and self-loathing are definitely a few of those weapons. And that's something that I've learned so profoundly over these past nearly 10 years of doing this podcast, talking with so many people about their experiences with Mormonism, the pain of losing relationships with family and friends, of being misunderstood, misrepresented, questioning your own place in the universe. Is there any meaning to anything at all? 
going through that whole thing. And then the unexpected, unimaginable joy and often terror that comes when you find yourself creating a brand spanking new life for yourself, building on your past experiences, and often finding real value in many of them, even in the midst of all that crap. Now, a listener recently filled out a survey on the website, and in it, she told me that her favorite things to hear on the podcast are stories of thriving. Well, this is one of those stories. It was such a pleasure to meet Jared and to get to hear his story, and now it's my great pleasure to share that story with you. All right, we got a special guest with us today, and he's uh, this is Reed, by the way, and this is one of my close friends that I grew up with. Um, uh, his name's Jared Rohr. He we grew up in this little small town in New Mexico, and we did all those idyllic things that you do as kids together, getting in trouble, making fun of people, dry ice bombs, all that sort of stuff. So Jared and I hadn't really talked for a long time until, well, at least a couple of years ago after I had um, made my way out of the church and I knew Jared had. And so we started talking more and more. And Jared has a fascinating, fascinating story that I think deserves to be told, not only in just kind of what happened to him, what created his kind of trauma throughout his life, but how he's gone about healing. And that's really, really what I wanted to focus this discussion on. But in order to get there, we kind of want to understand a little bit more about Jared's early life. So Jared, can you, uh, do you mind starting off uh, or at least kind of giving some background on your on yourself and um yeah yeah so i'm jared hello everyone so good to be here um it's really a privilege to get a chance to tell a person's story so i thank you for that opportunity and um a big a big uh theme going through this story is really it's really about shame and how we deal with shame and how we recover from shame and so um it's not i am I was raised LDS. Uh, I was a closeted Mormon, gay Mormon boy. I'm not anymore. So that's a big theme, but shame is common to everybody. And whatever form it's delivered to you, you just get buried by this truckload of shame shit. And then you find your way trying to get the stink off you for a long time. And um, I'm really pleased with some of the ways that that's happened for me. And so that's why it's so exciting to talk about my story. Um, you can't really talk about my story without talking about addiction. So when you're raised, when you're raised Mormon, um, you know, anything, I mean, anything sexual can be classified as addiction, but that's definitely a part of where I was heading and what brought me into this fascinating relationship with the church. Um, people often ask me, well, when did you know you were gay? And, you know, how did you hide it? And they don't, there's not a holding place for being gay when you're raised in the kind of stalwart LDS family that I was raised in where you're five generations back on both sides. You've been LDS and you've never interacted with anybody who's gay. And anytime the word comes up, it's just treated like a sickness or a disease that can be healed or jailed. So you have weird feelings and I never thought I'm gay. I thought I'm having weird feelings and these feelings are bad. And so the shame just began early on because there was no holding place for, oh, you have an obsession with boys' bodies, you're dirty. 
Oh, you like to see boys in underwear? You're disgusting. Oh, you're in the locker room changing clothes and you're having a thousand feelings all at once. I mean, imagine a straight guy who had to change in a locker room where he's seeing bras and panties and butt cracks and cleavage. And then he has to pretend that that doesn't do anything to him. And on top of that, he has to feel guilty beyond guilty that he even notices or thinks anything about it. So in my story, it's just this, it's just so much shame and the shame, I don't know which came first, but the shame, um, you know, there's some talk about uh, how shame just breeds more shame and more shame. But in my story, it's not just that I was attracted to men, but I felt so terrible about it that I started to have even darker thoughts. Now I would, you're really a bad person. And I, there was a time when I was a boy, when I saw a news thing about Jeffrey Dahmer, the guy who cuts up people and eats them and freezes them in his basement, you know, and the shame that I felt as a boy was so intense. I thought that's who I identified with. I am a Jeffrey Dahmer, but thank God I'm raised in the Mormon church and have Jesus on my side. Otherwise I would be freezing people and eating them in my base, you know, whatever it was specifically that he did. So it's hard to talk, it's hard to convey the level of shame that I felt or that others could feel, but this created a whole sense of, I was a walking, you know, as I got into be a teenager and then a young man, it was like, you're not just um, gay, you're a pedophile, like you're disgusting and you are a problem that needs to be dealt with. And so, all these addictive behaviors came up mostly because I'm a good Mormon boy. I never did drugs or alcohol, but I, it was mostly around food and sex, compulsive masturbation, compulsive porn, anything that could induce or express the feeling of shame that I felt inside brought me relief um, to do. So whatever kind of gross masturbation practice or whatever kind of degraded porn I could find or any kind of behavior that felt dishonest or illicit was something that I was compulsively pushed to. Um, and then it just gets so bad, you know, where it's like in, in my story before I finally, before the breaking point finally happened, I mean, I was in the peak of my addiction, you know, you're, I'm meeting guys for sexual favors in the bushes and going to gay bathhouses and having all kinds of whatever experiences I could find there. So that's, that's kind of that part of the story. The thing that's really the thing that I love about my story is that I always was a really good Mormon boy. And I always was dedicated to the church. First and foremost, I felt it as deeply as I've ever felt anything. And so I constantly, especially when it was time to go on a mission, I really started reaching out to my leaders for help. Like I'm drowning. I need to be pure. I want to be different. And so I really, um, I was always transparent as transparent as I could be trying to get help and to do the things right. So that set me up. Uh, that set me up by the time I was, you know, re returned from a mission, was able to successfully and honorably complete a mission. I came home and had a series of nervous breakdowns to where I couldn't really function in life anymore. And that kind of put me in the mercy of um, just needing help and being totally, totally willing to do, to walk through fire, to earn my salvation, to merit Jesus's love, you know, all the things that go through a boy's head. 
And um, I started to enlist in my, so I'm, you know, in my middle twenties and I enlist the help basically of the entire stake because I am so dedicated to overcoming. I'm going to be the one who proves that gayness is a disease that can be fixed. And that I'm going to spend the rest of my life teaching it to the world. And I'm going to be the best goddamn Mormon Jesus boy ever. And, um, my parents are going to be proud and all five generations on both sides of my family are going to be proud of the Mormon boy that I am in the latter days, you know? Um, can I back you up just a second before you your, before your mission? What was kind of some of the advice that the people you reached out to, what did they, what did they tell you? Like, as you were preparing for your mission and asking for help, like what, what was the suggestion? Like, how are you going to serve honorably um, and still fill all of the shame, I guess? Yeah, at this time, I still, I still didn't have words to think that I was gay. I just thought that I was bad. So I didn't go to a bishop and say, hey, I'm gay. What do I do exactly? I mean, when I was at BYU um, trying to stop masturbating, you know, I told my bishop, I've got this addiction problem. And I think, I don't know, but does that mean I'm gay? And my bishop said to me, it's all addiction. Um, so we're just going to work with you to stop masturbating. That gay thing is going to disappear and you're going to go and have a great mission. So don't even worry about it. And at the time, I really appreciated that he didn't just think I was disgusting because I touched myself. You know, that's how much shame I had around. Him. So that kind of helped. And I basically just white knuckled it in a way. I guess I just told myself, if you can get through two years of a mission without masturbating, everything's going to be cured. It was intense motivation. And so I was able to do that. But then when I got home, I had a nervous breakdown because it was so traumatic being a gay boy on a mission, being stimulated by every little thing and always just feeling, you know, like I would go to them to get my endowment and had an erection through my whole initiatory thing because men were touching me while I'm naked under a sheet, feeling guilty the whole time. Like, why is Satan here with me in the temple? And then Adam is so handsome in that movie and he's shirtless, you know? <laughs> It's like, how am I supposed to focus when I feel? Anyway, it was just, those are kind of funny things that, that more, more <laughs> we just don't think yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> Eve, Eve wasn't so bad either. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right? She's yeah. okay, wasn't she? I mean, the old school blonde Eve, she was more attractive than the brunette, I think. But... What? Uh, no, no. <laughs> anyway. So um, the you come home from your mission and you say you had a, a nervous breakdown. Like what was the, could you describe that a little bit or, or like kind of what triggered it? Like um, where were yeah. you then? Were you like still, did you move back in with your parents after your mission or were you like going back to school? Yeah, I had, there was a series of them. I had, I had, I think I had a total of like three nervous breakdowns, but basically what it looks like is you just, I couldn't, what it looked like for me, was that I just couldn't tolerate living anymore. And so death was constantly on my mind. Um, but suicide is like worse than being gay. So I was trapped. And so the anxiety just, I was so riddled with anxiety that I couldn't, it was like it began to erode my central nervous system and little things became difficult. It became difficult to shower. It became difficult to leave the house, to sit in a crowded movie theater. Um, you know, dropping out of school, couldn't work, things like that. And then I would get help. Like I would go and get some, some therapy. I mean, I was in conversion there, a form of conversion therapy for over 10 years. You know, I started 
the minute I had my first nervous breakdown and I admitted to one person that I needed some help was like, let's get you in conversion therapy. And I was like, let's do this. Let's heal this. Let's fix this. I'm in. So, so in wait, conver- time out here on the conversion therapy. So in Mormon, no more that documentary, was it, was it similar to that? They showed that kid that had been through it and yeah, totally. He wasn't, re- he wasn't in it for 10 years though. You like you were, <laughs> you were doing that for 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I watched that, that documentary and um, I experienced, I didn't get to go on the specific journey into manhood thing that he went on because I was poor. Uh, that costs, that costs, you know, $600 or something like that. But a lot of, a lot of similar things were happening through my therapy and my support groups. So I was relating a hundred percent just, uh, and yeah, I kept it at it for 10 years because I wasn't cured yet. And so I thought, well, then do it for longer. Try the next thing, read the next book, um, have another nervous breakdown and then pick up the pieces and find a new therapist who gives you a new ray of hope. I mean, it was all rays of hope. Oh, well, you haven't tried my way. Oh, well, you haven't read this book. Um, there came a time, you know, I, I had a, I was at BYU when I had my first nervous breakdown. I rehabilitated myself, so to speak, and had some, some hopeful experiences. But then I landed up in my parents' home in Eastern Washington in the Tri-Cities. I think Jess may be from there. And uh, had a second nervous breakdown there. But this time it was like, I, the whole, I kind of got the whole stake involved. And I became, it was like, I wasn't just, it was like the whole, all the heavy hitters in the stake knew my story. And they were all behind me going to help me. Like I was Humpty Dumpty and we were all putting the pieces back together. And so that brought me hope to have so many people on my side. I thought like, we're going to do this because the state president said like, this can be done. And if you're willing, the Lord is going to work a miracle with you and we're all going to celebrate. And I thought, okay, I will do whatever that takes. Did they give you like um, blessings and that sort of thing too, along with that? Yeah. I, I mean, I got blessings. Um, I spent considerable time one-on-one with the people that were considered heavy, like the, the experts on the atonement, the heavy hitters, the spiritual gurus, masculine men who we read the book of Mormon together and they would um, slash me with verses about repentance and humility. And you got to be, you know, all this stuff. And without ever really trying to, I just kept confounding them just by sharing. I'd say, well, let me share this experience that I had. What do you, so you can tell me what I could do better. And they just would be like dumbfounded. Like they didn't even know a person could have experiences like I was having. Um, so they, I, they I were, keep, I keep thinking like, imagine if it, cause you described them as being experts on scripture. Mm-hmm. If, if they would have had that much unified compassion behind you and support behind you and have been experts on human condition and like the human experience, mm-hmm. instead yeah. of just like this kind of narrow view that we don't understand or acknowledge this icky part Oh my gosh, it could be so powerful to get that kind of support behind you. It sounds so frustrating that someone who's, there's nothing wrong at all, but you're in a system trapped with zero tools to effectively help you. Like, and I don't doubt for a second that there were people that were genuine in the way they wanted to show up for you and, and like your need and you of getting creative inside of that system to pave a way for yourself, but it's so limited. You right. only, like, 
can do so much. That's so and, and it's based on this view, like because you said something like that they were very supportive of me. And I and I thought, well, the parts of you that they knew and, and understood and accepted of you, they were right. like not of the whole of you because they just didn't mm. they didn't know to to do that. Um, yes. and, and you, and you still felt, I mean, like to this theme of shame, all of these people, all of this effort, and, and you must've still felt like what's wrong with me that I can't get over this hump that there's this part of me that's broken. Cause I can't fit into this box. I am well, I so, I am so evil. None of this is working. Yeah. Well, oh. when you're given just a binary, it's either this or this, it's man or woman. These are your roles. And you are forcing yourself into something that you know your body knew. You could feel it. You had the breakdowns. That was the accumulation yeah. of that. Um, it's just, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Jared, well, was, was your uh, patriarchal blessing, like, was that something that played a part in this whole role? Like, did you go back to that? Was that a source of, like inspiration or shame or strength or uh definitely shame um my patriarchal blessing makes these promises to me about a wife and children that i will you know raise you know things that you know there's i can't say that that it wasn't that there wasn't any part of it that was inspired there was a part that says that if i will follow the promptings of the holy ghost i will be inspired in every action and find a lot of joy the interesting thing is that that's the life I'm living now. The life I'm living now is a life where um, if you, and I say I follow my intuition, I follow my higher being, but as I do that, I am guided to the most incredible synchronistic life experiences that are just beautiful and joyful beyond my belief. And I'm filled with gratitude, but that's, so that part was true. It's just that they said, Holy ghost. And they said, wife, and they said, children. And they said, you know, work for the dead and all this stuff that they have to say. Um, but otherwise, I think the patriarch was kind of inspired to say, there's something special about you. You need to listen to the inner whisperings. I love that. In your stake, did uh, were there like uh, licensed like professionals or like therapist <laughs> professionals that people referred to you, like Mormon therapists? There were. Um, by the time I got to the Pasco stake in Washington, I had had enough LDS therapists that I was sick of them. Um, they were worthless to me because mm. they just, they gave me nothing to chew on because they just kept like, they don't have to do the real work. They just turn it over to Jesus and the atonement. And so I was Jesus and atonemented to death. So when the stake was saying, you know, get therapy, I found an anti-gay therapist who wasn't Mormon because at least he gave me some new books to read. And he actually, um, he was like a masculinity coach. So he was coaching me into masculinity, which felt like something that my LDS therapists weren't really doing. Uh, but yeah, I found it. And I, I still would say he's a great therapist. He just, yeah, I found a great therapist in Washington, as good as you could be for being a, like an anti-gay therapist. And, uh, a lot of good things came from that in that I learned who I was as a man. You know, he told me, if you don't learn to decorate Jared, if you won't embrace being de decorating, you're going to die. And I was like, I can't be a decorator. <laughs> if I decorate everyone's going to know I'm gay. He's like, well, the only thing I hear about you, Jared, is that you want to decorate. When you're depressed, you'll decorate your mom's house. And that tells me you're passionate about it. And if you don't follow your passion, you're not going to get anywhere. So sure enough, I became a decorator in the Tri-Cities and had a successful career and I loved it. Uh, and I loved it. So I was like, well, thank you very much therapist for, for teaching me that I need to follow my passion. Even if people, even if it makes me look more gay, you know, at least he wasn't crazy, you know? But then he still, he still did the shame thing about, you know, 
you need to, you need to not be gay. And those God doesn't approve of those feelings. And so there's still something broken. And there's this whole thing that they, the church's whole, everyone's anti like conversion therapy was based on a book by Joseph Nicolosi, who basically, in my opinion, says you're gay because what your parents did to you, because your dad was distant, your mom was overbearing. Mm -hmm. And so this was traumatic on every, my parents felt total responsibility for my gayness and they were, and, and it was just so traumatic forever. They broke me and oh my God, the trauma never ended and the shame was never ending. And none of that is true. And all of Joseph Nicolosi's patients, I don't think he has one. He was like one of the originators in the 1980s, if I'm getting my facts straight here, but all of the church's stuff is based on his research and it's all been proven basically false since. And so it's, you know, it's, that's a topic for another day. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the fun thing, the thing that I think is so fun is that I, I was so sincere in my struggle with the stake and with my therapist that they, the stake president finally sat me down in tears. And he said, Jared, we've given it our all. And, and, and he, and he acknowledged, and so have you, and we're no further along than when we started. And I said, yep, I'm still meeting boys for blowjobs in the bushes <laughs> at times. <laughs> Uh, and I feel terrible about it, but I can't stop. And he's like, I know. And he really knew that I was sincere. That's how sincere I was that even the stake president was so, he just knew about my sincerity. And he said, I failed you. And I'm, and I don't know what to do about it. He felt shame for failing me. And he didn't know where to file that in his Jesus volumes. And my therapist said, I don't have one more book for you to read. I don't have one more exercise for you to do. I mean, I had done it all. I was the center of a very masculine group of friends. You know, I did all the things they say that once you do, it'll fill the void to be gay. Well, after 10 effing years of conversion therapy, being a very diligent student, I did it all. I, I did it all. It was, it was done. I, I had confronted and faced and addressed everything with my parents. I had masculine friends. I did masculine activities. I was myself, you know, I was very authentic in so many ways. And yet I was still gay. Surprise, surprise. Did you so, have any gay friends or anyone that you knew around you in your, in your circle that was? Hell no. No, hell no. I would have, <laughs> I didn't want the shame. I didn't want more shame people. You know, like since I thought that was shameful about me, I didn't want to be around anyone else who was having right. shame, you know? Yeah. So I stayed away from those. I didn't want them to make me, you know, like make me more gay or what if they hit on me? Like mm. I was, I was totally isolated from anything that would tempt me. You just blocked it out. You, yeah. I just yeah. blocked it out. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, so, you know, the, I was, the church failed me and they admitted it. And the, the state president said, he goes, I know that it's, I know the disciplinary court is not right for you right now. He said, so here's the deal. When you've masturbated for the last time and looked at pornography for the last time, I want you to tell me, and then we'll decide what to do about your church membership. And I was like, <laughs> I mean, I was, it's funny now, but I was devastated because my beliefs were torn from me. I was beyond help from God himself. And so that put me on a very destructive path. And I remember ending up at a bathhouse in Seattle the night before some family reunion, I got a big hickey on my neck and showed up on this family cruise. Like the next day feeling the shame of my actions were on my skin and everyone was asking about it. And I just remember thinking like, it's time to die. You've done it all. There's nothing left. So when I got off the cruise, um, 
I had one really good friend who, you know, she was raped by her bishop and raised in a sex cult in the church, which is a fun podcast for another day. So she and I were the only, <laughs> we were the best friends. We really got each other. And she said, well, Jared, before you die, you know, cause we talked openly about killing ourselves. It was both an option for both of us. Before you die, I think you should try a non LDS 12 step program. And, um, so that's, I can, I can attribute that program to saving my life because that's where we come back around to the dealing with the shame that in this program, I can't even recommend 12 steps to people today outright. I won't say that wholeheartedly they're the best thing. Most of them are shame bound, but the universe heard and saw my efforts and lined up a group of men that were good for me. And so you just do the next thing that comes to you when you're trying to expose your shame but I basically arrived in this group knowing that I was going to die or I was going to jail and I was okay because in my heart, I knew I was going to hurt. If something didn't change, I was going to hurt somebody. I was going to involve someone who was vulnerable. I was going to inflict my shame on someone else. That's how bad this gets. I was going to hurt a child. I was going to drug somebody and touch them. Like you hear about, you know, psycho college roommates doing all these thoughts were compulsive beating on my brain constantly. And I thought, well, I'll just die then. I, I'll kill myself before I'll hurt someone else. So I got to the group and as fast as I could, I began to rip that shame bandage off. But what I found was so the opposite from what I was finding in church. Um, I found men who, one, could relate. So I was not alone. They were men who had been damaged by shame and were also wanting to get better. And the more openly I shared, the more openly they shared. And the more love I felt, the more love they felt. And we just started this upward spiral of love and camaraderie. And several of us really started to heal. I mean, we really started, the compulsiveness started to fade away to our actions because love is a delicious thing. And camaraderie is a delicious thing. And even though we still told each other every day we were broken, which I don't like that right now. That's yeah. why I can't recommend 12 steps. But in that moment, that felt so much better to be broken in a group than it was to be alone and to know that I could be broken and still be awesome. So that was a beginning. That was such a beginning. And sure enough, I was able to stop masturbating and I was able to stop looking at pornography and I became a 12-step rock star. And I started talking because I was the only one saying things like pedophile and attraction to minors and talking about my experience and saying things like gay in a Christian based 12 step. And so my sponsor was this tough talking, masculine, handsome dude. And he just put me on his shoulders. He had been an Alcoholics Anonymous for 20 years. He's a total badass. He saw me and he put me on his shoulders and he basically paraded me around the greater sexaholics anonymous community in Northern Washington. And and I just became the celebrity and people started calling me from all over the nation. Even the world, I got calls from England, people who are having shame problems, their sponsors would say, well, we hear there's this guy out in Washington who's doing pretty good. You should give him a call and tell him your secrets. And sure enough, it felt so good because I, I just knew what to say. So that, that, was a, that was a turning point, but you know, word gets around to my stake president and he calls me in and he's like, oh, Jared, you're just oozing pride. And I mean, you're glowing with love. Like God's love is working through you. If I can just feel it. I said, yeah, yeah, bastard. I'm doing pretty damn good. You know? 
Um, that was the kind of how I felt. And I was cocky as hell right then because I thought I'm finding the answers and changing people's lives. And y'all are sitting like babies in the dark, um, bumping into walls, thinking you're so special and you're not. So wait so a minute. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm, um, I'm on a, I'm on a, on a, on a roll. On a run here. <laughs> yeah, you got yeah. to yeah. interrupt this Baptist preacher. You know? <laughs> so I imagine that when you were going through a lot of the work with your stake and with your stake president, with your family and, and everybody that they probably said a lot of the same kind of things about like love. Like you said, you know, love is a delicious thing. I'm sure that your stake president was telling you that he loved you. You know, the important people in your stake were telling you that they loved you. What was the difference between the kind of like moments when they would tell you that they love you. And when you got to this 12 step program and these people what was the difference between the kinds of love that you were being shown? Like, what did that, what does that look like? Um, like what, what made it so much less shameful, the love that you found in that uh, 12 step program? Um, that is, that question gives me chills. What a great thoughtful question. Yeah. And the answer to that, was, I think was expressed by their Jessica Glenn in that they were loving part of me but they couldn't even look at my darkness, much less love it. They couldn't even hear it. They didn't even want to know what I was doing in the bushes, much less love me for it. So how could I, how could I let that, that love in? And that love wasn't real. It was just words. But when I show up to a group and I say, I'm feeling really guilty because today, you know, I objectified some innocent man in the airport and had a fan, you know, they would just be like, Oh, Jared, I did that too. That's so the could, key. That, that seems like it's the key. And I'm glad you asked that question, Ren, because Jared, when you, when you talked about the 12-step program and that you're, you're around these men who could really relate to you, like I, I thought, you know, there's this culture in the church that even if there were men who could relate to you, they weren't allowed to share it. You know, like they, they weren't allowed to say, you know what, I've had these thoughts. I've, I've been in the bushes. I had a blowjob from a guy just a couple of weeks ago. You know, they, they can't say that. Yeah. even if it's real. Um, and, and so you weren't getting that like true, genuine acceptance. And I, like, I remember with my own dad, once I had this conversation, I was probably 18 years old and I came into him. I said, you know, I feel really just content. I'm really happy. You know, like, and he's like, I'll oh, be careful about that feeling of contentment because as soon as you feel content, that's when the devil comes in and starts to tear, tear you down. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think that's true, dad. I, you know, like I, I think that's just a good way for you to prevent yourself from ever feeling happy and, and content. But I, I think that there's this, this strain of thought in the church that's like, you don't want to encourage sin in anybody else. So if you've ever had sinful thoughts, just keep it to yourself, just share mm -hmm. it and just encourage people yeah. to go on the right path. Don't ever talk about the wrong stuff. And so you miss out on these opportunities to really empathize with somebody like you got when these people that could really, truly relate to you. And you felt that. And that was so freeing and liberating for you. And here's a massive thing. If you have not looked at your own shame, yeah. other people's shame disgusts you. And mm -hmm. so you can say, I yeah. love you. But the energy is, but you need to change because you're disgusting because right. you triggered the part of me that I think is disgusting. Yeah. So all well these men, in, all of these men in church that love me were scared boys hiding their own, whatever their secrets were, whatever their, because shame is universal, you know? Mm -hmm. 
And so they, they couldn't look at it. Church just says, leave it up to Jesus. He'll take care of it all. You do X, Y, and Z, and Jesus is going to wipe the slate clean. You don't actually have to look at that shit or deal with it. Um, in 12 steps, it was so different because there was, there were, I found some men that had, that had looked at their stuff and they loved themselves. So when I said it, they just could love me. And I knew they loved me because how it felt, how they looked. it was in the eyes. It wasn't words. And, and then, and then it was so funny and it was in the, it was in there. It was in their words too. You know, like I just finished, to, I was sharing the most embarrassing things about you know, things that made me feel so dark, like I broke into someone's home and went through their underwear drawer and all this stuff in my addiction as a teenager and just felt like such a Jeffrey Dahmer pervert, you know? And this man who had been in 12 steps for a long time, he looked at me and was like, he, he, heard, he let me go on and on and on until all the shame was out there. And I was thinking he was judging me. And he goes, well, Jared, I just want you to know you definitely qualify for the program. Don't you dare think you're different than me. He goes, I'm not into boys and I didn't do what you did, but he goes, you know, I froze a hot dog and shoved it up my butt just because I was feeling dirty. <laughs> you know, it's like, thank you for making this funny. And thank you for the work that you've done because these experiences are not unique to me. So, I mean, rapidly, rapidly, my shame started to change. Uh, and can I add something real quick? From a parent's perspective, I have kids and my oldest is lesbian and she when we left the church there was this pivotal moment of dissonance for me really because here she was engaging in in young women's activities coming home just defeated and this group of friends she had grown up with you know they had been amicable and had good relationships and then she had this other group of friends at school who were also LGBTQ affirming and identified that way. And, and the, the dissonance for me was feeling worried about her going off with her friends at school that in my mind were the bad influence, yet it was undeniable the difference in her persona, how she felt about herself when she would hang out with those friends. And I thought, I'm worried about her feeling good and I'm like encouraging her to go to a place where she feels bad, you know, this does not add up. So I think for her being at the age she was at, you know, 12, 13, when we detached from church, not enough, some definitely too much shame already had sunk in, but not enough to the point where she was deeply rooted. So she could tell the difference and we were able to course correct a little bit <laughs> there yeah. but yeah it's obvious when you're when you're honest with yourself in the way that you feel you know and I say obvious I mean it's complicated but paying attention to the feelings that you get with people that are authentically looking at who you are and the people that won't it, the the feeling is undeniable when you when you can love someone in their shame you teach them to love so deeply and you empower them and I I have such a capacity to love and it's one of my greatest pleasures that was just locked up my whole life. It just, I felt like this pressure in my chest couldn't get out because there's no vehicle at church to love as deeply as I was designed to love. There's no vehicle in church that allows a person to love as deeply as I was designed to love. I think and that's so, one of the main themes of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Jared. Mm. which is something that we'll be talking about here eventually. But there, there's a line in there about how the the nature of like human nature is to love, like this deep capacity to love that gets locked up 
by all of our fears and prejudices and just just all that that stuff. I love that you said that and have experienced yeah. that. Yeah. Well, in that power, the stake president tells me that I need a disciplinary court. And he said, he goes, Jared, in this stake, he goes, I'm just going to be honest with you. He says, we just crucified a guy who had a, like a spontaneous affair with his secretary. He said, they're not going to go easy on you. And the stake was full of hypocrites and full of secrets. I know that I, cause I know the secrets, you know, everyone wants to share their secrets with you once you start sharing yours. Well, not, not everyone, but some people do. So he said, are you down for this? And I said, I'll do it. If you'll give me, I need an hour to share my experience. And then you do whatever the hell you want in or out of the church. I could have cared less at that point. So he's like, okay, he goes, I'll set it up. These men need to hear your story. Okay. So I show up to these with, I show up prepared. I'm glowing. I feel sincere. I am emotional, but I start off saying, I feel like I'm showing my, per I'm casting my pearls before swine. That's how this feels. Because you are men who, you know, because of how this has gone down. I shared my story. Um, there was a lot of tears in the room. One man tried to go all self-righteous and rally the sharks with blood in the water about we're here to address your sin. That's a nice way, but, you know, you've sinned and we need to address that. And I just, um, can, I don't even know what I said now, but I had the word, like, like a Benedict in the book of Mormon, just like confounding the wicked priest and Noah. I just shut him up and made him look <laughs> foolish without ever losing step. And, and then they asked me, okay, well, leave the room and we'll decide. And um, I came back and they said, we've, it's been clear that you, you're not to receive any discipline whatsoever. You, you can resume full activity in the church. I mean, the stake president said in 20 years of being on all the disciplinary councils in the Pasco stake, he's never, ever felt prompted to do that. Because, you know, he was um, in the state presidency and then he was called to be state president. So it was like 20 years worth of disciplinary co courts for him. So he thought I was something special. But the minute he said, so, you know, the minute, um, well, basically, uh, my bishop, who didn't know anything, I just said, I think you should be at this disciplinary court because you don't know me and this will give you a chance to get to know me. And so, you know, he was this young guy about my age and his eyes were open pretty wide during that disciplinary court, but he's also kind of cool. So after that disciplinary court, he, he asked me to be the gospel doctrine teacher. And I said, no, I said, you won't like what I have to say. And the stake won't like it either. I'm just going to cause problems. And he said, Jared, I'll stand behind you. Whatever you want to say, say it. So I did. And uh, my, my gospel doctrine class became this, this really very popular thing. Uh, so popular that the stake started to shut me down. Um, it took a year before they, they started. They told me if I didn't step two, they were going to release me. Was, so was, that, was that a year of weekly Sunday school meetings or did yep. you like alternate with somebody weekly. else? Yeah, that was weekly. Yeah. People started coming from other stakes. Um, the bishop said he's never seen the hallway so empty. And my class was like every seat was filled with standing room only. Because, Wait, just and I'll just add that um, Jared had that reputation back in Mexico. My, like he was uh, always an amazing, amazing teacher. That's just like a, a talent Jared has. So I'm not surprised that that was the case. That people were coming from all over. Well, thank you, Reed. The thing that gets me though, is that it was so awesome that they wanted to shut it down. Um, and then my Bishop to protect me, I felt like he called me to be his executive secretary. So now I'm not just teaching gospel doctrine. I'm in the effing bishopric and I'm going to every bishopric meeting and state council meeting and i'm raising hell everywhere i go because every time 
not in a rude way, but they just, they say things and I'll say, well, I'm not sure that feels like love to me. And the state president at, you know, ward count, like ward conference is like, Jared, would you shut up? Like you're causing a lot of troubles, making me look stupid. Um, my bishop had me give trainings to priesthood leaders about addiction and masturbation and would often counsel with me after he had um, interviewed youth about, not about their specific issues, but just, you know, how do I handle stuff? So together we made this and I'm telling you all this because it, it helps you to know why my exit to the church was the way that it was. I mean, I went out on top. I was very popular in my ward. Everyone loved my openness. I, I didn't say full out that I was gay, but everyone knew it because of my comments about attraction and things like that. Um, I wasn't acting on my gay feelings, so I could still be um, Mormon appropriate at that point. And my bishop relied on me fully uh, at the same time. So I was like, I highly influenced this ward. And this was an, and it was an amazing time to be so influential and to be able to love a little bigger than what is allowed in church. But that could only last as long as my bishop was there. And when he got released, um, you know, the stake president circulated rumors about, about me and I was, I was uh, ousted. And, and all, all the while I was with my bishop, I actually felt this, this feeling of like, you got to step down. And I thought, no, 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 no. This is where it's gotten good. Like, I'm finally in a good place. I'm healing the church. I'm making the difference. Um, and when, then when this, is, Jared, when is this? Like, what year is this are we talking about? This is two, the 2012 to 2013, around there. Okay. Um, I'm like this rock star and well-loved and so popular. And this voice is saying, you need to walk away. And I was like, no, I don't. Um, you need to walk away. And I started talking with my bishop about it. Like, I actually think I'm going to stop going to church. And, and he said to me, Jared, I'm begging you. I only, he didn't say, don't leave the church. He said, I only have two months left because I don't want to do this calling without you. I need you. You're the best executive in, in five years. You're the best executive secretary I've had. He said, people confess to you before they ever even come into my office, which was true. People were telling me their sins in the waiting area. Then they, he goes, by the time they get to me, they left their shame with you. And I just tell them to do something productive, you know, whatever the church tells people to do. So he was like, I ain't doing this without you. So will you stay till I'm done? I said, I will. So, um, but then I walked away and then rumors got started and all this kind of stuff. And I realized then I didn't leave the church to be gay necessarily, but once I walked away from church, it seemed ridiculous. There just was a voice that said, Jared, go be gay. And I said, but I don't, that's bad. And that's wrong. And that's going to flare up my addiction. And that's going to all this stuff. And it was like, well, you already know the church isn't what it is. It's full of hypocrisy. You can't love as big as you want to. So you've already stepped away. Just try it. If you don't like it, you can come back to all this. They'll be waiting here for you, you know? So that's kind of how I, so I just started baby stepping towards being gay. And um, I got to do all the things I used to do in secret. I got to do them in the light without shame. You know, I got to have sex and feel good about myself. I got to um, experience affection and kissing and all these delicious, beautiful uh, things. And I got to have some terrible, awful, dirty moments too, and just laugh it off or, you know, let that inner voice coddle me and be like, well, great, great experience. You know, don't do that again. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. That's, this is not complex. Um, so in that, um, I really, he I healed so much basically that 12 steps kicked me out because you can't be in sexaholics anonymous and have sex with anyone other than your wife because they're Christian based. So church and 12 steps were no longer homes for me if I was going to really be who I was. 
And even though I thought I was happy in church, I didn't know how happy I could be until I relocated to California and really embraced a full and active, shame-free, um, gay lifestyle. And uh, I took all these lessons and I just had so much fun loving on the gay community and freeing them of their shame. I mean, just because they're not Mormon doesn't mean they don't, they're not locked in shame. Freeing, learning how to free people of shame and, and um, just bring out the best in them. I just felt so powerful in this. Uh, I was in Palm Springs, California, which was such a lust crazed, fun gay town. But I knew there could be more to, to gay life than just lust. And I had a lot of fun um, bringing the love and I became a professional cuddler. And I just did all this fun stuff. And I was an advocate for healthy touch and for boundaries and for delicious sexuality and all this kind of stuff. I just felt larger than life and bigger than life. Um, which, got, which brings me up to, to current day, to, to the pandemic. Uh, when the pandemic struck, things kind of fell apart for me. And I found myself living back in my, my parents had relocated to Cedar City to escape all the shame that I created in um, Washington. <laughs> that's <laughs> I what I did. <laughs> that's, that's not, my mom would just, if she ever listens to this, but the spirit, you know, they felt inspired to leave and it wasn't, it was inspired for all of us to leave Eastern Washington. Um, so they ended up in Cedar City, Utah, and then, and they love it here. Uh, and they don't know any drama, church drama here, because I, I was the one who discovered all the, all the like sexual scandal as I networked with people who were telling me their secrets, you know. So anyway, I, I, I end up here in their home. And, you know, of course, we've repaired so much because when I lost my shame, I was able to engage my parents differently. And then they were able to engage me differently. And so by the time I land in my parents' home, we have a very respectful boundary, respecting relationship. But I begin to feel something gross again. And I just think, where is this coming from? Well, in Palm Springs, I did so much exploration of any woo-woo, hippie medicine, energetic healings, anything I could get my hands on to understand better ways to heal and, and engage and, and interact with our bodies. I just knew there had to be a quicker, faster way than years and years of therapy. And, and even 12 steps had disillusioned me because I could only be, even though I was so healthy in 12 steps in some ways, I couldn't be gay in 12 steps. I mean, I can only be in 12 steps as long as I proclaimed that I was still broken. And the truth is, is that my addiction was completely healed. I was not compulsively drawn to any sexual behavior anymore. So they were like, well, if you're not broken, you can't be with us. There's no room for well people here. And it's like, well, then where does a well person go? You know, it was, very, it was kind of lonely, but also exhilarating to be well. So what do you do? Anyway, I'm here in Cedar City feeling, feeling dark. So I had come across a modality called um, family constellation healing. And this... Um, oh my God. I like, seriously, Jared, I just watched the Goop episode on that. Are you familiar with that? Like the, the no, Goop Love I'm, and Sex episode? No, I, maybe I need to do that. It, it's on Netflix. It's episode five of that series. And I saw that and I went, I need to learn how to do this. This is amazing. I can't wait to hear this from you. I hope it was so, a good experience because it's <laughs> powerful. It. No, this powerful. is and this is probably why I wanted to bring Jared on. Honestly, when he told me about this, I'm like, oh, you, you got to tell our group about yeah. this, Jared. Read no, I, I start. I I was watching that on Netflix, and I was thinking, okay, when we do our retreat, I've got to learn enough between now and then so that I can lead you guys in this. I would love to do something like this. So I I can't wait, Jared. 
yeah reed, reed was like keep the keep some things brief and get to the good stuff you know because we want to hear about <laughs> it's all been good stuff yeah you but now that you you've got this background so now if you don't have the background you can't understand how um and and you know constellation healing is awesome but my platform today is that there's so many people breaking through and exploring with what's possible. I mean, our bodies are energy. It's like, this is a widely accepted concept, which means that healing does not have to come in this slow drudgery that has come in the past, which is like years of therapy or tons of awkward conversations or confronting, you know, reliving all the trauma that doesn't necessarily have to be a part. We can heal and shed the shame so much quicker constellation healing i want to tell you about my experience just to give you an idea of what else is out there when you open your mind and you don't and you don't judge all of our modern day hippies you know it can be so delicious but um i just constellation healing was something that i found in palm springs but i didn't feel drawn to participate because i felt like i had the world by the tail it wasn't time to go deep for me it was just time to sample but in constellation healing um it's done it's done different ways by different practitioners, but the idea is that the practitioner, um, well, there's some, there, let's see, there's some foundations behind it. One, that we are born into an energy that has nothing to do with us. It was created by our parents and our grandparents and our relatives, um, secrets and shame things that they have. They're just in the energy. Uh, so when children are born, you know, they often, in Mormonism, they say that the sins of the parents are on the children for three and four generations. I mean, that's an interesting concept. Uh, but we know that so many times when there's trauma or drama in a family, that children are born and they kind of will take on the trauma, no matter how hard the parent tries to keep them from this trauma. And so constellation healing, take it or leave it. I'm just telling you what it, what it is says that there's, we have an ancestral field. We have an energetic field. It's just the energy that exists when we're born. And that energy molds and ships our, shapes our DNA. And so we know that parents mold and shape our DNA by how they treat us and look at us and touch us and hold us. And constellation healing just goes a little deeper to say, well, parents are molded by their parents and their parents are molded by their parents. And all of that is in your ancestral field. So when you're born, you're dealing with a lot of energy that you can't begin to understand. And when you start to have conscious thoughts, you've already been molded and shaped. And so there's, you're thinking things that you're not aware of and that you wouldn't even know that you're thinking. And you have beliefs that you don't even know that you have because they were with you from the minute you were born. So that was fascinating to me. So in the con, so with that, that's kind of like the idea behind this. So the facilitator sets up this, like calls it a sacred circle. And the person who's seeking healing is called a seeker. And with the help of the facilitator, the facilitator kind of uses their intuition to um, kind of decide what energies, quote, quote, energies need to go in the circle. And these energies are represented by live volunteers. So most of the time they start with your parents. So if you're the seeker and you've got some problem, you can't sleep, you're unhealthy, you're addicted, you know, whatever it is, they'll say, well, let's see what shows up in the circle when we put, um, we'll put someone who's representing your energy and we'll put someone who's representing your mother's energy and someone who's representing your father's energy. And let's just see what these people feel. And let's just kind of let them tell us what they're experiencing. And uh, so this is what goes on in a family constellation. You sit and you watch your energy not really being acted because you don't 
act. Well, some people do, but mostly just people saying, I feel this, this is what's coming up. And, um, uh, you know, the more you do it, the more in tune you're able to express what's coming up for you. Jared, and when, then we, when you did this, were you the one who selected the people from the crowd who would play like your mother or play your father or, or play that? Were you the one that would kind of intuitively choose who did that? Yes. Yes. When I, when I was this, I was, I've only been the seeker a couple of times and I never did it in Palm Springs. I only did it here in Utah. I volunteered a lot so I could tell. I volunteered a lot in Palm Springs where I would, some, you know, they would assign me, you're the grandfather, you're the maternal grandfather. Okay. And then I would sit and I could feel a distinct thing come to me. It was, um, and then the, the more you do it, the more, you know, like you come into the circle with a blank mind and then you start to feel things. You might feel a pain. You might feel a stomach ache. You might feel nausea. You might feel energetic. You might feel controlling, you know, and you, so I knew that this was real because I knew that I, these weren't just, I wasn't making these up, you know? Yeah. So when I was the seeker, um, yeah, the, she said, the woman said to me, okay, these are the energies. And, you know, there's this woman, her name is Shauna. I adore her. She's in St. George and she does constellations her own way because she, um, she's kind of an expert on shame. Shame is her big thing. So I was like, of course I'm drawn to her because I love dispelling shame. And she's worked with Na um, Native American medicine and she's um, was a polygamist in the church. So she's got all these cool qualifications that made her that first of all, made her suffer at a deep level and then opened her mind in beautiful ways. But so, yeah, she does constellations in her own way, but she said, I want to put the energy. I want to clear your parental imprinting. So she goes, let's focus this, your first um, constellation on your parent on what was passed on to you through your parents. So she, she said, you, there's going to be you, your mom, your dad, we're going to put the concept the energy of masculine, divine masculine and divine feminine. We're going to put fear in there and shame in there. Like she said, we're just going to put them all in and at once. And we're just going to see what happens. We're just going to see who feels what. And, uh, and then she kind of directs it. Like you interact with you. I want you two to come up here and hold hands and see what you feel. Okay. Now you interact with you anyway. So, I, and then I'm just watching, like taking notes and seeing what shows up. You know, because um, after a very five years of this beautiful life in Palm Springs, I found myself in a in a very deep rut. So in my constellation, um, my I'm trying to think like how much like to go in detail that without boring the listeners here. But I watched. It was so fun to watch my energy interact with the woman, the the representative playing my energy interact with the representative playing my mother's energy, and watch them have a conversation that was almost like exactly the kinds of things that we say to each other. I was like, how can they know this stuff? So it was like magical. Like I'm watching magic happen before my eyes. That was so fun, and that and so I'm watching, um, you know, things happen that I recognize as being part of my story, and none of these people know me. You know, so they don't even know, they don't even know what they're representing. They don't even know if they're a person or a concept. They're just saying what they think and feel. And I'm sitting there like laugh crying because it's so on point. Well, um, the thing that really, really touched me was when um, the woman who was representing divine feminine was basically hysterical. She was in so much pain. She was like howling. She was like weeping. She just, it, she was, she had a pain in her stomach. And as um, Shauna kind of directed the circle, it was so clear that there have been in my very pristine and delicious pioneer ancestry, there have been very deep and painful secrets. Just what 
people who, who have been forced to just cover up their pain in order to live what was expected of them in society and church culture. And that is an energy that I was born into, an energy of secrecy and of shame. And uh, I, it, was, it was so touching because the woman who represented my mom, I mean, my, my parents, they, nev- they had great boundaries. I mean, they never like molested me. We had, there was not sexual inappropriateness in my home. And yet from the time I'm a small boy, I carry with me all the symptoms of being um, molested. And all of the people I seek out have been molested. And in therapy, it always comes up, who molested you? And in all the work I've done with other energy healers, the answer is nobody. Nobody ever touched me inappropriately. And yet I, I have all the symptoms of someone who was molested as a child. And so I'm watching this constellation healing and I watch how my mom is totally baffled. The woman who's representing my mom is totally baffled by this pain that the divine feminine is feeling. And she's mad about it and she's confused and she's in denial and she doesn't want anything to do with it. And she thinks it's all stupid and it's all nonsense and work your shit out and get over it and leave me out of it. It's kind of how she had to, because she was born into the same energy and she had this, it must've been so confusing for her spirit to kind of make sense out of it all. And so that's why she clung to the church and that's why she's in, you know, why she needs the church and why she's able to deny any truth that gets thrown into her face. She's, that's just how she survived her whole life. She doesn't know any different. But the secrets are in the generation before her. And uh, we didn't have enough time in that constellation to get a little deeper into it. Um, And there was so much healing and release just from watching this play out before my eyes. Like I was able to let my mom up. I've been so mad at her for not owning more shit, like for being in denial. And in this moment, all I had was compassion for her. And then I had like triple compassion for myself that even though she's in denial, I'm not. And I could really honor my, my, cause you know, you see it, but I felt, I felt the wound in my family's past, like the spirit or the divine or the universe or my inner being or whatever you're connecting with was telling me that is in you that happened. It's real. That's in the energy and you feel it. It's why you relate with Jeffrey Dahmer. It's why, it's why you carry so much. It's why even after shedding the shame and saying secret, telling your secrets to so many people to where they lost their power, you're still connected to something dark that you don't like. And I was like, mind blown. Um, can, can, can I jump in for a minute here, Jeff? Please, please. I, I love what you're saying. And I, I'm still kind of amazed that I just watched this thing like literally an hour before we got in and, and had this, this conversation. Cause I had read about family constellations about a year ago. I, I'm, I'm in a, a master's program right now for clinical mental health counseling. And so it came up in the readings and I was intrigued when I read about it, but it wasn't until I saw them doing it on screen that it really hit me that this is kind of bypassing the the mental way of like, we're just talking to try to understand it. And you're actually putting your body on the line and you're watching people who are representing your mom, your grandmother, your, you know, this, and it's almost the way I thought of it was like, you're almost like watching a living, moving Rorschach ink blot (laughs) that is, is reflecting back to you. Oh, that's why I'm this way. Or that's why I feel this way. Or, 
you're seeing your mom as a human being instead of just this person who didn't do this or what, whatever it was to you. And, and at the end of, of this, they said, uh, what was it? It was something like my mental illness is mine and you don't need to carry it. You don't need to hold it. I'll, I'll take it, not you as a way of trying to prevent this generational trauma from being passed down and held by the, the seeker in, in this case. And that just seemed like such a really powerful experience. So for to, to hear you say that your view, your perception of your mom changed immediately, that you felt so much compassion for her. And then you felt triple for yourself by being born into this family that had all of these patterns and habits of interacting with each other that were formed before they really knew how to form them. And, but it, that, that's so healing. I love it. So. Well, you bring up awesome. a really interesting right. aspect of, of the, of the, the constellation therapy, because, you know, as these, as the people play out the energy, you see it before your very eyes, but you have, then I have the opportunity to step in mm-hmm. um, the, the Shauna, the facilitator, you know, when, when the energy that's representing me is interacting with the energy that's representing my mom and they're getting down to the core issues between us, then Shauna tells the energy that's representing me to step aside. And she tells me to get up, get up and get up in the circle and in the sacred space, tell your mom what you, what you need her to hear about you. Yeah. And then I tell the representative what I need to hear. And it is so valuable. And then see the representative is not my mom. So then they channeling her energy can respond to me and I get to hear and it's this very cool way of bringing what was hidden into this like tangible way. And even though, um, I mean, I have to admit that it has, it has changed things between my, my, my mom and I, but it also just allows me to make the shift, whether she changes or not is irrelevant. It allows me to make the shift in a very tangible, palpable way that talk therapy cannot deliver. Yeah. Um, and it's, did, did it make you more oh. accepting of your mom? Well, the, absolutely. And the thing about this constellation healing or any, any healing that's valuable, and this is just one, I'm telling you, there's a lot out there and there's more coming because a lot of people are getting awakened and finding different ways to help us to sort through things quicker. Yeah. But any modality that's useful reframes, it's not really about right and wrong these secrets that my ancestors did, you know, it's like, you want to be mad about them. I mean, that's just life. Um, don't be mad about them. Just accept them, accept that everyone does the best that they can and that you're doing the best that you can. And that, you know, Shauna always says the real sin is in the secret, not in the deed itself. Yeah. And so I love it when we, when in the constellations that I've been in, when we're looking at abortion and child molestation and spouse abuse and child abuse and all the darkest, deepest, nastiest things that humans can do to each other. I love the perspective of just like that. It happened that we were born into this energy, that it wasn't an accident that we were born into this energy. So we don't need to waste time being mad about it, but we do need to expose the secret. The secret is the damage. When we can expose a secret, then healing starts to heal now. And we say, Oh, like signs are pointing to to several things that I have not I need to do some more constellation work if I want to get to the deep, to the, to the nitty gritty of it. But it's looking like there was a pedophile in my family and it's looking like, you know, things like, like that. And so I don't have to expose the secret on channel four news 
but I have to acknowledge a secret for myself. That's where the exposure. And when, when I, and, and just see that energy of like, oh, that's what I was born into. And that's no accident because, you know, we're born, constellations teach you that you're born into the energy that you, that your soul chose so that it could develop into the, the soul that it wants to be. Let's say something real quick. It sounds so incredibly empowering, like putting that, put, putting you in a position where you're adding meaning to the feelings that you feel. It reminds me like with my kids right now, we're trying to teach more emotional intelligence and that's something that you also don't really receive, you know, very comprehensively in the church other than happy is good and sad is bad. <laughs> but with them noticing when they're feeling something, putting a name to it and recognizing what it is, that to them too, I can feel the change in them of feeling like I'm not a victim to this. I'm experiencing this. And then for me, you know, feeling the feelings in my body that I can't always identify, I can see how something, you know, modality like this in getting in touch with those feelings and adding meaning to those feelings would really bring you to a place where you can be actionable in those things. Sounds really neat. It's validating at the deepest level. Why I like it, um, mm -hmm. because it's this, you know it's this energetic sacred circle where you're able to feel things at a deep level, and it's yeah. magnified by all the people it's who safe. show up. It's yeah. safe. It's very safe. And it's so validating. Sometimes when you stand up in a role, you need to shout things at the top of your lungs with all your mm -hmm. being, like "You hurt me, you cool. GD mother effer." I mean, that's an, that's an appropriate thing to say. That's an appropriate emotion to feel. You feel it, you express right. it so that then you can say, hey, you might've done your best, but, but you hurt me, GD mother effort, you know? And um, be okay with that's how you feel. Oh, I mean, I, I just- No could, judgment. Like, you yeah, just let it all out. No judgment. You might, yeah, you hurt me and I'm, and I'm saying that you hurt me. That feels really good. And uh, someone hurt you. This is, and this is what you see in constellations. Like where does, if you want to blame, where does the blame stop? Because the person who hurt you was hurt by someone else, was hurt by someone else. That's a human condition. And so I like to think that by acknowledging the hurt that was passed on to me, that I don't have to go on and out and hurt someone else. And that's the beauty of it. Not that, oh, you know, it just eliminates victimhood. It just eliminates it because you get to be in it and be so validated and so deeply seen you're expressed by others who feel your energy. You're seen by a group all simultaneously while you're doing this. It's not done one-on-one -on -one behind closed door. So it's not, it's not for the faint of heart and it's not for anybody who's comfortable in their secrets, but there is a freedom. And, and once you do a consolation with people, you're just comfortable with them because they've seen all your shit and they love you. And talk about dispelling shame. I mean, I, I did a second constellation recently around money, why I'm struggling with money. And the, the woman who was representing me as she's interacting with the different people and energies, she just broke down and she just started saying things like, I'm dirty. I was born a mistake. I don't deserve good things. I still think I'm broken. I wish I was more strong. I wish I was more masculine. I wish, you know, all these things that I'm like, oh my God, that's still in my energy. But I, but you know, logically I'm thinking, but you're over that. You love your mix of feminine and masculine energies. You know, you wore a mini skirt kilt to this party. Like you can handle this, but it was, it's what's, it's the energy of my ancestors that despise feminine men. It's the energy of my ancestors that say genders have to be a specific way. So that's an energy I was born into. I mean, I my mother, go, go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to say, I, I think there's also, there's so much unconscious programming 
that we're just not even aware of. Mm-hmm. So, so like for, for you to say, Hey, I wore this kilt skirt. I'm totally fine and comfortable with it. Yeah. With what you're familiar with, with what you're aware of, but then there's still all this stuff that you're not aware of that might be manifesting in blocks in how you feel about your worth when it comes to money or to other things like this. So like uh, always looking for those parts of ourselves that we're not really sure of has become one of my, <laughs> one of my obsessions in these, these later years and kind of like recognizing I've got so much that was programmed into me that I'm acting on all the time that I'm not really even totally aware of with it. And um, anyway, I wanted to oh, add that. that. Thanks, that's Jerry. why you're drawn to constellation healing. I can see it because oh, I, yeah. I feel I feel passionate too. Like I, I just, freaking put on this little well, constellation light in the background <laughs> without even knowing that we were going to be talking about constellations here. This is just like my fun little glowing sky Ooh. lamp thing. Glenn, this I, this is Jared's life. Like synchronicities everywhere. This is yeah. Like what what happens with Jared? All right, are we going to be friends, Jared? <laughs> yes, I cool. want to be friends. I want to be friends with all of you. Yeah, but I mean, this is this is the fruition of my patriarchal blessing. You know, Mine by, too. By walking into <laughs> my by by shedding my shame, I just feel like so open to the like call them promptings because that's a good Mormon word. But all the things that trigger me, like you know, Reed says you want to be on this podcast, and I feel good about it, so I say yes, and then something cool happens. Yeah, that's how like uh, an idea will come <clears> to me. <throat> go to this place. Go to that place. Do this. Do that. And it's so fun to be in the right place at the right time. And to have the right words. And so I'm like, yeah, I love it how, quote, the Holy Ghost guides my every decision, which is what my patriarchal blessing said. Yeah. That's true for me now. Jared, you're saying you're in the Cedar City, is that right? Yeah. Is this uh, constellation therapy thing a pretty popular like modality amongst uh, ex-Mormons? No. I mean, no, no, you haven't seen that. Because... What you're describing sounds to me a lot like uh, like the temple, right? Like that's the whole that's and I, and the, I have a question about mm-hmm. this for you specifically. Like how much do you think, um, you know, speaking of like uh, uh, the way that you're conditioned that you might not be aware of in Mormonism, the the most sacred and significant experience that they prepare you for for your whole life is the temple, right? And the temple is just this allegorical play where you see this, this narration, you know, play out and nobody's allowed to talk about it, you know, outside the temple. Um, And so all the interpretation you have about the play is in your own head. And so I can't help but imagine that everybody just kind of transposes their own self in the place of Adam or Eve um, and, and then kind of takes from that play uh you know application to their life or whatever and so i'm wondering like this isn't really a unique to mormonism kind of thing like this kind of like uh uh, teaching is done in a lot of different cultures but i'm wondering if that had any influence on you in your reception to this like constellation therapy or if that has any kind of connection i guess gosh that is such an astute observation and it might be why I am so lit up over it because it's like the right way to do that whole Mormon conditioning thing. Like it feels so good. Um, I know the interesting thing is that a man, the man who founded this constellation healing, his name is Bert Hellinger. And he, he witnessed this in Africa done by um, 
whatever Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe. Thank you. 20 years he was there. And then he brings it back here, puts his German spin on it. And then he started teaching. And then people take his, his teachings and they put their spin on it and they start teaching. So it's, it's kind of evolving. But when I hear you talk about it, I'm thinking that it's like basically custom tailored for Mormons, <laughs> you know, like we're all conditioned to love this kind of thing. I thought, wow, maybe that's why I do. And, and something else uh, I wanted you to touch on Jared, but um, you mentioned secrets and the fact that this ceremony kind of brings out secrets. And you mentioned, we talked about confession and how in the, in the Mormon church, you have this confession idea, right? But it's, it's different in this, Right. And I wouldn't mind if you touched on kind of the differences between how actually confession is healing. It's a, it's, it's a good thing, but not the way it's done in the, in the church. I wouldn't mind if you talked about that. Yes. Confession, like when it's done between two equals, like Reed, you and I are having a phone conversation. We've actually done this where we talk about things about our lives that are real or that were embarrassing. And, and we just are like loving every moment of it because we both see each other highly. And so when we're done, it's an exhilarating conversation. We feel uplifted. That's the kind of confession that's valuable. Um, the flawed thing about religious confession is, first of all, I mean, first, it's like, where do I even start? I mean, first of all, you believe that you're inherently bad and that you can't get back to heaven without Jesus, who loves you because he's better than you and he can love in a way you can never love and you need him. And without him, you're nothing. Without him, you'd be, um, you know, chopping people up in your basement. You know, that it's like, just that very idea that you're bad and you need Jesus. And so you go to confession with this idea that I'm jumping through some hoops to see if I can get the atonement activated for me because I need it because I'm nothing without it. So that's already shame. And that's a shame inducing belief at your core. Um, yeah. So the the whole like idea that, that the atonement needs to be activated is a hilarious Mormon contribution to Christianity. <laughs> that here you have the, this, this powerful God incarnate that does this atonement, that forgives the sins of everyone, but that atonement lays dormant until it's yeah. activated by the Mormon priesthood. I mean, you talk about hubris. My God. Anyway. Anytime you share, anytime you share your truth with someone who hasn't earned the right to hear it, is going to create shame or it has the potential to create shame. So if I'm trying to talk to somebody who, um, it, you know, hasn't done their own shame work, then I'm going to feel stupid about the things I'm telling them. So nowhere is this more true than when someone sits before a bishop who is already doing his best to sweep any imperfections under the rug so that he can hold the mantle of a bishop. So he's definitely not okay looking at his stuff. And then he feels the weight of having to represent Jesus, which is so unfair to put on a man uh, or on anybody, you know? So the imbalance there of him trying to, you know, listen to the sins so he can like absolve you of it is just shame inducing no matter. And I've had some bishops, I think we all have that are so sweet and so kind and they don't say anything wrong. You know, they just want the best for you, but their hands are tied. Just the nature of the fact that they're in a Mormon church and they're the bishop and you're in an office behind a closed door, the whole thing is shame and um, reinforces shame. Even if you leave there feeling loved and heard, you still leave there feeling like I'm broken. And if I don't do X, Y, and Z, like if I don't, you know, get that, that atonement jump started, then um, I'm doomed. Like that's a terrible thought. 
versus constellations, which says you came here for experience. So experience. Oh, you experienced something you didn't like. Hey, that's what you came for. Oh, someone did something to you you didn't like. Hey, that's what you both came for. Um, constellations teach us that we're we're basically um, what's the, anyway. They have this fun language that I haven't mastered, but um, well, anyway, Shauna says it like this: We're all here to um, experience shadow and to be the shadow for someone else. Basically, like we're all here to get effed up and we're all here to f somebody up. It's just kind of how it works. So. As a parent, good luck not effing your children up in one way or another. It's what, it's what they came for, all right? So you can't feel guilty about it. You just do your best. And when they expose it, own the truth. Because the, secret, the sin is in the secret, not in effing your children up, not in doing something they didn't like, not in giving them a complex. The minute they say, mom, you made me feel fat because of the way you talked about my clothes. You say, oh, gosh, I didn't know I did that. Thanks for bringing that to my attention. I guess I really caused you pain that I didn't know about, you know, and then that pain can dissipate and the shame can dissipate. It's, it's pretty powerful stuff. I have a, I have a question for you, Jared. So you were talking about how, like, if you, if you share your experience, like your honest experience of shame, like what you've, like what you've done, your feelings, thoughts, actions, all of that stuff with someone who has not done that, where you're like not on an equal playing field or where they're not willing to do that same thing with you it creates this like weird imbalance of, of power. Right. You know, can I repeat that again? Cause my, my phone just glitched for a second. Oh, sure. <clears throat> so you talked about like sharing, sharing your like honest, true self, like your feelings, thoughts, actions, all this stuff, like your, your shame history with someone else who has not gone through that same work or is like not in the same place. And that weird, like imbalance of power. How do you, so how do you do that with someone? So like me, myself, I'm going backpacking with my brother this weekend and he's like my brother who I'm closest to. And like, we talk regularly, but like only sometimes do we talk about like really deep stuff or history or things like that. Like lots of our conversations are, you know, fairly surface level or like we don't dive deep into like our thoughts and feelings. Like I do with so many other people and I want to with my brother, but like, how do I approach that is my question. Yeah, great, great question. Um, one, it's like you can't really do it wrong. Um, the worst case scenario is you're going to feel a little foolish or feel a little vulnerable or feel a little embarrassed. That's not the end of the world. So it's nice to know that, that any effort is okay. One thing that's worked well for me since it's been like a life mission to create these relationships with people where we share shame is that I just, it's like we're building a bridge. We're, we're on opposite ends of this gorge and I lay, I lay down a stepping stone and then I wait to see if they'll lay down a stepping stone. I say something vulnerable and then I, see, I wait to see how they acknowledge it. Um, and so if I might lay down and then I'm kind of brave and I can take some stuff. So I might lay down two or three or four or five stepping stones. But if, event, if they don't say something, then it just means they're not ready to go there and I'm done before I really like lay on the thick stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, because I don't, I don't want to burden anybody with, with, I'm not here to burden any, I don't need anything from this person. I'm just trying to connect at a deeper level and set a, a stage of openness. So I just baby step towards it and see how it feels. Now with some, some men are more vocal than others. And so with women, this is, this is like really 
I can't even say all women because, you know, men and women communicate on a spectrum, but there's this feminine energy of communication that some men possess, but a lot of women possess it. So when, a, when this person has a, this like feminine energy of communication and they're more vocal, they'll respond right away. You lay a stepping stone and they're going to, they're going to jump on it. Oh yeah. I, I've had an experience too, where I felt embarrassed too, when, or something like that happened to me, boom. And then I go deeper and then I wait and I just go until they're not willing to match me anymore. Um, that's what Reed and I did after we connected after, you know, 20 years of not being friends or of not being in contact. And it was awesome. Reed met me every step of the way. We had a great time. If you're with someone who's not vocal, if they're a, a family member, you might just want to lay something out there like, uh, you know, um, our dad abused me when I was small. You know, sometimes you just need to get shit out there yeah. and you do it whether they're ready to hear it or not. That's your call. Or, you know, you can say things like, um, I've always been embarrassed that I have a small penis or something like that. And they might just be awkward and never talk about it again. But, you know, it's like those, these are conversations that I love having that in the gay culture, you know, I have these, I'll, I lay these stepping stones and men are always so willing to meet me because we all feel so insecure about certain things. So I don't know what your motivation will be for um, meeting your brother or what you want to tell him or what you'd like to hear from him, but have fun with it and uh, don't be disappointed or don't have any expectations. Yeah. Like maybe he's not the one, you know. Kurt, have you compared your penis size with your brother recently? <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I mean, and as far as like length, I'm okay. Length, it's girth yeah. is like the issue. It's like <laughs> right, I <laughs> right. I get it. I get it. Yeah, way to shed the shame over that. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Yeah, well done. <laughs> I'm trying to fit the frozen hot dog joke in here somehow, but I can't. <laughs> I think I it's it's worth saying too. I mean, I'm no expert at all, and this is all fascinating to me. I'm trying to compare with experiences that I've had, um, putting myself out there. You don't always know when those things kind of take hold in a person either, because I've had moments where I've been really vulnerable and nobody's reciprocated. And then years later, it's it's been something that they've bookmarked or felt. And when they're experiencing something similar, they can reach out and, and come back to you know that safe place that you've established. So. Um, I don't, I think it's always worth when you feel it and you feel that desire to connect or put yourself out there. I think it's, it's worth something. It's worth trying. Well said. I really love that. <laughs> any, any, the more practiced I get at it, the less worried I am about, um, cause you know, once you're se more secure, I just listen to those, to those ideas, those promptings, those feelings. And if I feel to say something, I just say it. And sometimes all you hear is the crickets chirping and other times you're, you're rewarded with um, a, a coinciding share and it's delicious. But I had, it, when I was, you know, a Sunday school teacher in the Mormon church and I'm teaching Sunday school talking about sex abuse or we're on Mother's Day and I'm talking about how some mothers are just broken and terrible and Mother's Day is traumatic for so many of us. Crickets would chirp after a comment like that, but months or weeks later, I'm getting people saying, you know, my mom sexually molested me and I can never talk about it. You're the first person who's ever acknowledged that moms aren't always perfect or that some moms have mental illness, you know, and um, that's how I started to, to find out all these, you know, all the secrets and corruption in churches that the more I would drop a stone, the more people would in their own time find me and want to reciprocate. So be a badass with it and have fun with it. All right. So we've got about an hour and a half. 
Reed, did, did you get everything that you wanted from Jared round one? Did you see what I did there? <laughs> yeah, no, I, Jared, that was, um, I, I could listen to you all day, honestly. Like I could, I could listen to you for like 12 hours straight. So if you ever want to put a podcast or, or write a book or something like that, I would, I would totally read it and be all over it, but I, I love Back you, Jared. To Pasco. You, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you and I'm sure Jared and Jess could, could talk after this for a while about, oh. you know, and, and Jared could reveal all the secrets, right? <laughs> secrets. I don't know. Secrets. But uh, man, I, I feel like, I don't know. I feel so um, hopeful, I guess, after this, hearing this, just, I love getting this message out there and I feel like our culture as a whole, as a country, as a society needs to hear what you just talked about, Jared, about the secrets that we're all whole, holding on to and, and the amount of healing that we, we could allow ourselves to have if we um, allow it to happen. And um, it's just unbelievably beautiful to me. And I'm, I'm, I'm just very moved by everything you said. Jared, so hey, thank you hey Reed, Reed, how much healing do you think is prevented because people look at certain healing methods and go, oh, that's just woo. Oh, I think there's a ton. I think there's a ton. So um, I, but I feel like we're, we're starting, <laughs> we're starting to um, get somewhere. Like um, they just released on Netflix, the how to change your mind. Oh, the I Michael really, Paul. I can't wait to watch that. Yeah. Oh. And I, I just watched the whole thing, but I'm like, that might get our country somewhere if if we have legislatures watching that sort of thing and seeing that okay we need to get past this cultural bias that we have against you know these sort of medicines and it, it's kind of the same modality i think is what constellation healing it is it's very visceral very real and it's not just talking to a therapist and it works and it's been proven scientifically to to work so let's let's get on it and i i feel like as like we're slowly getting that locomotive just starting down the road and it's like i feel like it's just in time in terms of where this country is heading and yeah. um as a society where we're going with with so many of the mental health issues that we have um but uh so yeah thank you yeah you want to come back jared hey anytime yeah we'd love to have you back yeah thank you Jared, how much do you charge per hour? <laughs> well, All right, uh, we're done. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, Jared uh, also <laughs> teaches dance. Uh, he came to our house, and that was that was that was talking about talking to me on the phone, not for anything else. By the way, that was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. He's not cuddling anymore, though. Sorry, <laughs> professional cuddler. I want to know more about that. <laughs> Well, for cuddling for a hundred no. bucks an hour, I'll, I'll teach you all kinds of things as a cuddler about how to touch and be touched and ask for what you want and um, get what you That's want. Cool. You know, you, you've got kind of an Oscar Isaacs look to you. Have people told you that before? No, I, yeah. I don't know. Uh, you don't know who Oscar it. Isaacs is? I'll have to Google him. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Answer. yeah. He was, he was yeah. most recently in Marvel's uh, Moon Knight. I mean, he's, he's oh, been in okay. Star Wars and like, especially like, like nose eyes up. All right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. It's a compliment. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Compliment. All right. 
Yeah. Anything else? Hey, no, no, no. Sorry. I was totally serious in wanting to pay you money and talk to you on the phone, by the way. <laughs> oh, well, like, um, can, can I get your contact <laughs> info from Reed? Yes, please. Anyone, please get my contact info and um, contact me. And um, I mean, I, I will work something out. Yeah, I, I do charge. Let's just talk about it. This doesn't feel like quite a venue. So, so let's up. go through some of the things you do, though, Jared. You teach dance, private lessons. I've, I've received those lessons. They're, they're awesome. Um, there is also you do design. You come into people's homes. You redesign their space using a lot of what they already have. And I think you have a website for that, right? Isn't it Roar Design? I've always been word of mouth. Is it? You don't have a website? No. Nope. It, isn't it on Facebook or something? Like On my Instagram and my Facebook. What's your What's Instagram it? handle? Um, on, well, Facebook, I'm, I'm uh, J-A-R-E-D-R-O-H-R-E-R, just Jared Roar. On Instagram, I'm, I'm Jared R-D-C. That's J-A-R-E-D-R-D as in dog, C as in cat at Instagram. Um, so but yeah, I do those things. And I, I'm also a, prof- a professional cuddler and I've done some life coaching. And basically, I, I mean, I basically charge just $100 an hour for my time. But, um, but, you know, I also trade and I also make exceptions. So um, contact me privately and let's see who what's what. I will. Well, thank you all. Put down the weapons that you use against yourself. You don't need them anymore. Lay down the weapons that you use against the world. We don't need another war. Put down the weapons that you use against yourself. Hi, this is Hillary, Matthew, Ryan, Carol, Ashley, and I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, Give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? My worst crime is an inside job. Dark thoughts taking over like an inside mob. I tune him to the scene between the eyes and take a breath. Thank you for listening to Infants on Front. I sit still and watch the thoughts float past me. Never mind the future, never mind what the past be. I like to jump and let the universe catch me. Three, four, watch the beauty blow past me. I keep my pockets like destination in sight. Keep my actions elevated to compassionate heights. I'm walking past the fight, laying down arms like the night. Choosing love when I pick up this mic. So-